Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat with your hosts, David Clancy and Kieran Dunn. This is a podcast about high performance. What we are striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high performing individuals tick, why they do what they do and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons and learnings. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We're back. Season of Reflections, Chapter 2. We're looking at the psychological safety and belonging. Look, building on that previously is Kiran. A lot of people were saying to us, we'd love to know a little bit more about what you do at Hawara. And, well, psychological safety and belonging has really come to the forefront of a lot of the work we do here in Ireland. Yeah, we're looking to enlighten, educate and empower individuals in this space because it matters hugely to our individual lives, but also our working lives. And with what's gone on in the last few years, the challenges we've faced, the uncertainty... It's something we really feel passionate about. I think it's fair to say that we haven't written the book, let alone come up with all the knowledge and the science. We're going to share a little bit of that before we get into the guests. But really, teams have to feel safe to perform optimally. And, and psychological safety in itself is very much an ongoing and fluid process, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, we had a chat about the best teams we were on or the best teams we worked with. They're the ones where you can go in and you, you, there's no change in who you are when you walk through that door. You're still yourself. You're still Kieran Dunn or you still David Clancy even if you're working as a support staff or even if you're working as the star player on that team or the star business athlete or whatever you want to call them it is always important that you stay the same there's no change yeah I think alignment's massive and we we hear a lot about imposter syndrome these days yeah. with the work we do and I think if you can forge and nurture that sense of belonging you know you're part of something well it definitely ignites well-being and performance culture but it helps reduce the potential of developing that imposter syndrome, which isn't great. Yeah, so psychological safety, that's something that's been mentioned a lot now. Probably wasn't mentioned about 10 years ago as much, but one lady who was mentioned a lot was Professor Amy Edmondson. Yeah, she came up with it. And, you know, even if you look at the Harvard Business Review, you'll see articles out there on collaboration and, and teaming. High-performing teams need psychological safety and, and how to create and how to forge it. But really it's about... You know, I suppose admitting mistakes, Kieran, isn't it? And how we can achieve great outcomes from that. Yeah, I think it's most important that if we are going into a group setting to work with others, we have to be able to challenge each other. I think Ray Dalio had a big influence on the both of us and he talks about an idea of meritocracy and radical transparency where you can speak up no matter who you're speaking to because everyone is trying to get to the best answer. They're challenging the status quo and trying to make a change that will be influential to the decision and get to the right answer, not the one that's just going to boost my ego because I think it's right. Yeah, it's funny. In those kind of initial phases of when you're trying to activate psychological safety in an environment, you often talk about inclusion, kind of bringing in inclusion and diversity, but also these, these organizations tend to evolve. They tend to be learning organizations willing to engage with contribution and challenge. And that's really at the heart of it. You know, it's, it's okay to make mistakes, isn't it? Yeah, we've all been in them environments with groups where we maybe shy away from telling what we've done wrong, our mistakes, because we don't have that safety, that environment, that security, as you'd call it, that if I do this, it's not going to come back and I'm not going to get punished or there's not going to be a reciprocation of bad elements that happen because I've made something a negative aspect or a mistake. And there's no doubt like the pandemic has challenged a lot of the connection, that kind of sense of togetherness over the last couple of years. And we really do hope that these couple of stories we're going to share will help build on cohesion, build on teaming, you know, respecting boundaries, the importance of consistency around roles and responsibilities, behaviors, values, really building into positivity so I suppose enough of enough of us talking Kieran but 
who's going to be shedding some stories and lessons for the listeners today? Well, we've got some excellent ones. We've got specialists in high-performance leadership and teams. The head of high-performance at Management Futures, we've got John Bull coming up first. Yeah, we have Owen Eastwood to follow, the author of Belonging. So he's the man who has written the book on belonging. Performance coach, amazing track record, you know, worked with Harlequins to a high level. So it'd be really interesting to hear what he has to say. We've also got the tenor, tenured Hockey Ireland player, Lisa Jacob, who's now the team manager and also the co-owner of Hidden Strengths. Ray Goggins is coming up as well, the author of Ranger 22 and the chief instructor of that crazy RT Special Forces Ultimate Hell Week series. So loads of interesting people centering around this big topic of kind of belonging and safety. Yeah, what you can get from this is whether you're working in a bakery with a bunch of people, whether you go to school, whether you're in a high-performing team in a Fortune 500 company, whether you're in elite sport or in a GEA club or local basketball team, when we're working with others and interacting, psychological safety will absolutely elevate us to the next level and we'll be able to create an environment where we all thrive because of how we interact and how comfortable we are with each other. Yeah, just to echo on that word here, uncomfortable, right? We want to feel that we're safe where we are and what we're doing and who we are, you know, we don't have to have a persona or an avatar. And I think that's, that should really resonate with a lot of people. So that's a big message. Yeah. And as you mentioned, it's not easy and it's not going to be something that you don't mean comfortable as in going in and relaxing. You mean striving for excellence and something we've always tried to do is challenge each other. When we both are in, in agreement, we often ask for, is there another lens we can look at this because is a group thing going on? Are we just seeing the same thing and agreeing with each other? To fluff egos to not to not have a a personal argument or falling out we want to get to the right answer though so we want to see different viewpoints i think that will build in really well we've got another chapter coming up in a couple of weeks on kind of exploring cognitive diversity and why that really is a competitive advantage so listen out for that one in a couple of weeks but um yeah let's get to those guests um it's a great question actually david I, um there's a number of elements to that i i, I think one of the things is about we're quite caught on thinking about stable teams as as opposed to actually standing back and just saying, how do you create a, a culture that's really good at teamwork? You know, and I know we've talked before about the work of Amy Edmondson and, and, and the whole notion of thinking about teaming across functions and across people as opposed to within um, a, a stable team. So I think one of that, I think that's one of the keys is to, is to build a culture in the whole environment around how do we just get really good at collaborating um, and, and doing that at pace when new people come in. So, so building that, that kind of skill set uh, around uh, that is absolutely critical. I think um, we actually did some work within uh, the UK sports system on this just last year, actually. There's something about leaders understanding key transitions in, in teams and, and what works uh, and, and how to navigate those. So I think one of, the, one of the really common transitions that's just constantly coming through sport is new people coming into the team. So leaders just having some, some skills and some tools, if you like, uh, around actually what do we do um, when, when the team is in some transition around that. And I think sport kind of inherently gets that equation a lot better than business does, you know, that, that there are two really key ingredients. There is do everything we can to get the best possible talent um, and then put a lot of energy into how do we create the right environment that's going to allow that that talent to to show up consistently uh, and 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 perform. Um, I one of the things I really love about the equation is the multiplication rather than the add. You know, it's the, it's the idea that 
um, the talent you have does affect the environment. The environment you have does does affect the talent. So they're kind of uh, inter interrelated in that sense. As you know from having read Belonging, I strongly believe that our ancestors had a much better idea of what makes teams strong than we do because ultimately they only had each other. And uh, now we've got all sorts of technology and strategy and organisational stuff and consultants and all the rest of it. And there's all these books and it's just so complicated and there's so much noise around how you create a good environment. But our, our ancestors didn't have any of that and they had, a, therefore, in my view, a very clear view of what makes teams strong and what makes them weak. And the first thing that they all would always, and I'm talking about across all of our cultures, from Ireland to Polynesia, when I'm, I'm part of both of them. First thing was making sure people had a sense of belonging because when people had a sense of belonging, their anxiety levels reduced and that had a big effect on people's behaviour. You're able to uh, have a sense of confidence in the people around you, you could trust them, you, therefore you could work together in a way, you could uh, make sacrifices for each other because you realise that through thick and thin you were going to, you belong together and you were going to go through this whatever challenges together. So we need a sense of belonging. So belonging cues are really, really important. If you feel excluded, if you feel like you're not really part of who we are, then it has creates a massive anxiety reaction and it really affects and downgrades a lot of your thinking and behaviours. So we're not interested in that. And the other, the ancestors were also very clear on that you needed to know what you were belonging to. So they were very good at articulating a story of who we are. And often it was quite inspirational. So this tribe, this community, this family, this nation, you know, there's stories and there's, we still have these stories about who we are. And that's really important because if, notwithstanding our diversity, we can attach ourselves to being part of us. And, you know, there's a lot of research which shows that human beings do look at the world as us and them, which has got a lot of negative connotations to it, but it is just the way we think about things. So we are tribal in a way. So we don't have to be degrading others, but we, our leaders should, certainly should provide a story that we want to attach to in terms of who we are. And then another big part of how we create this connection is that while we're doing all the work, we're not just sort of each day performing a task and then another task and then another task, that we want to feel that we're part of an, a story that's revealing itself. So the story of who we are is something that hasn't ended you know, when we arrived, it's something that we're part of now and it's something that will go into the future. So good leaders are able to explain and actually take the time to create these town hall type environments. You can do that online as well about this is what is happening to us right now. This is how we're performing right now. These are the challenges and everybody feels part of it. And everybody, you know, as someone said the other day, and I thought it was a good analogy, it's like good leaders are able to create a Netflix series about us and what they mean by that is everything that's going on at this point in time is like an episode in the story. Um, and at the end of the episode, we always preview the next one. So leaders are good at that. They, they, they should be able to tell us this is what's going to come next. But also in a Netflix type series, there's often flashbacks to the past, which give us deeper meaning as to what's going on. That's important for leaders to be able to do that as well. So if we're facing adversity right now, if we've got a particular type of challenge, it's really useful if they are able to t flash us back into the past to say people before us also face similar challenges and they were able to overcome it. And this is how they did that. And, you know, either through their values or certain traits that they have. And this is what we need to sort of 
replicate ourselves. So I think those things around belonging, around the story of who we are and around visioning, you know, what's coming up, they're the things that connect people rather than just sort of sitting around and doing team building exercises. And I fully agree belonging is such a huge part. And the way you mentioned it as an evolutionary need, hardwired, why do you think we've lost our way and we've become disconnected with that hardwired need? Well, I've learned a lot from the evolutionary psychology guys at Oxford University. You know, they've explained to me that 99%, actually more than that, of human history, we were hunter-gatherers and we were fundamentally part of our kin, our extended families, but we're also part of bands of people. And these would often not exceed 150 or so people. So we spend most of our time in these bands of 150 people down to smaller groups, maybe 45, 50 people, um, could be our extended family. And they were part of wider tribes, but we, we sort of lived in specific areas with these bands of people. And in those environments, you knew everybody. And actually, it was quite a democratic culture. Um, the leader was there to look after everybody. It's a fundamental role. There weren't dictators in those small groups. They were only there because people allowed them to, to lead. But what happened about 10,000 years ago is agriculture was developed. And from that, it just caused a fundamental change in the way human beings arrange themselves. All of a sudden, we stopped sort of moving around so much and became a bit more static. We've developed not only these villages, but actually extended to towns and then to cities, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands and millions of people. So all of a sudden, the sort of intimate way that we were used to, where belonging was something very visceral because we knew everybody in our band and our family, we started to become part of these communities where there was, you know, as I said, hundreds of thousands and millions of people where you don't know all the people around you whatsoever. In those contexts, your sense of belonging is reduced and that creates a lot of anxiety and lack of cohesion in, in communities, which you still see um, now in terms of crime, in terms of all sorts of social problems. All these forces were unintentional in a way, but they've undermined our sense of belonging. But it's never gone away. It is completely hardwired into our biology that when we go into a, into a situation where we don't actually feel we belong, we feel like an outsider, we feel like people are judging us, they're not including us, we still have this incredible hormonal reaction. So our biology and our psychology has not changed, but our environments have. So I think, you know, the smart leaders, and you see it in sport sometimes, which is great, but also in other parts of society, you know, we try to gather smaller communities where we feel that sense of belonging, whether it's a church, whether it's going to a sporting game, and, you know, smart working environments do the same thing. And they take us back in many ways into our evolutionary past where we are part of a smaller group of people where we feel a sense of belonging, we feel like we're at a shared mission together and we feel this could be a safe place. And if you can tap into that, then I believe that's where you start to really explore people's potential. I don't believe you can get people to their full potential when they are in a state of anxiety, feeling like an outsider. It's a really difficult one in high performance because best effort and max effort is required like a lot you know it can be day in day out you know you can have down periods for a couple of days every month or whatever but you really are existing in an environment where just being part of it there's an expectation on you that you're going to deliver everything you have and so I suppose it's kind of that experience of understanding that you know over seven eight ten years would mean that with the younger athletes I'm much more conscious of you know, they don't really want to take the breaks when they get them in the season, the two or three weeks. And 
it's just about really saying to them, I know you don't feel like you need it, but just take it, book something and go away. Or um, And then I suppose with the kind of older athletes where you know that there's that accumulation that's happened over over a long number of years. And also they tend to be the people who are captains in their clubs and they're maybe the higher profile players who are wanted by people a little bit more to do all the talks and do whatever is about just trying to have those conversations with them to you know and then they're all really nice and probably really bad at saying no to things um and it's just about making sure that they they understand what they really need to do for themselves first and foremost and then everything else that they need to do what is what are the priorities and then what's the thing that you need to say no to and just trying to i suppose um maybe coach them a little bit around that um but i suppose you can't do the hard work for them but just i suppose trying to give them some examples around your own experience where um they may not realize it now but it will kind of help them to sustainably give the best of themselves in in lots of different ways in lots of different areas and and lisa just to build on that drive is something obviously that that really helps people excel and 139 caps for the irish hockey team transitioning into the the oval oval ball game with the rugby team and then obviously even with that contract with the netherlands um club there with hockey you achieved so much as a player so how can you help with those players that are on the cusp maybe of of really becoming a really special player because you've been there and done it at such a high level for such a long time Mm. yeah i suppose probably for me personally i always had a curiosity around my own potential that was probably where my drive came from is that I wanted to understand maybe how good I could be or how far I could go or whatever. And so with the younger players, it's, I suppose, first and foremost, helping them to understand their why. So that, I suppose, a lot of days can be tough days and hard days and the days where you you don't have drive just readily available to tap into. It's about maybe digging a bit deeper into your own purpose and reason why you're you're trying to be part of a national team or or whatever it is that your ambition is. Um, so that's probably where I start, that they they understand the anchor and everything can come from that. And I suppose there are kind of there are lots of things, maybe technically and tactically and all those sort of things that hopefully you can support players to become the best that they can be by, you know, I suppose there's so much that you can look at when you look at a player with potential, but from a coaching point of view, it's really trying to like strip everything away no more than I was talking about energy there and go, what are the one or two things that will make the biggest difference? On top of that, I really find actually people in Ireland particularly, and also I suppose when you look at the female population, they really struggle to understand their own strengths, sort of proudly bring them to the world. Like oftentimes, like I'll give you an example of a player who came off the pitch last night and young player in the national team and she had only picked up a stick for the first time in three and a half weeks after a break that they'd been on and, you know, came off a practice match. That's the first one back after Christmas and had eliminated maybe four or five players and then hit the target, but didn't score the goal, you know, comes off like I should have scored that. And it's actually about reframing the perspective and and kind of saying you need to recognize all the good that you've done in the buildup and, Yes, of course, we can add this on. And if we're still talking about it in six weeks from now, you can be annoyed that you didn't score. But just 
that people really understand their strengths as well and can see that in practice and can can see their own progress as well and all of those things I think actually can really help from a drive perspective to push you to the capacity of your potential or to the next level or whatever. So for us, like how we do it in selection in the real world, um, in special forces is, you know, you break that team down to zero and it's a vulnerability piece we work on where they're in a position where they're absolutely, they've all seen each other at their worst. And then the next phase of it is to build them into their skill set and improve. So how you work on the mindset is by instilling more confidence, working on their decision-making process under pressure. Like you, you make a p- position of adversity all the time. So every little thing they do all day is pressurized. So it becomes a norm for them. So that straight away gives them their mindset is improved. They're more confident. They're more confident in their colleagues. They're more confident in themselves. And the most important thing with mindset and being mindful, people don't understand the special forces. They think like, you know, you're an assault more and it just goes in and shoots people. There's so much else to that. Like the mindful side of it is more important where you're aware of what's going on, both inside your head and outside around you. You're focused 100% on the task. When I'm saying 100%, you're not thinking about your shopping list or what you're going to do when you're finished. You're 100% focused on that task and nothing else. And they're two of the main things that will help a guy going forward. So that's what we'd work on with people. And, And given that ability to do that at the drop of a hat, and there's certain techniques, obviously, and routines and drills we would practice continually and, you know, to make that work. And let's talk about core skill training, you know, mindset, merging of performance, passion and purpose, like big words, profound words that really resonate to uh, to everyone probably listening to this today. Kind of where did this where did that movement start for you, like the core skill piece and kind of what what are you hoping it becomes? Um, for me, I suppose, goal-wise for it, how it started, I had been doing it assisting other groups, you know, on a smaller scale. Um, I had got some inroads from people because of the show and other things. And don't forget, like, I spent, you know, before the book and all this and the show were 2019. The 30-odd, 32, three years before that, I was building myself as, you know, a normal soldier first, then a special forces soldier, instructor, teacher, trainer. So... We had that loop of, you know, your operation, then you go back to train, your operation, you go back to train. So it's a natural fit for me to be, I found, to be able to kind of move that on to other people. Um, so it's not that I find it easy to do. I just think that I have a knack to identify teams maybe and help them build a little bit. So that's kind of where it came from. I decided I'd kind of do it this year and see how, how, how well, not see how it went out. It's going to work. Of course it's going to work because that's the nature of the person I am. I make it work and that's the way it is. The... Kind of, um, so that's, and the mindset for me then was, and what the goal of it, like, I, I just would like it to, to establish it. Like I've given it this year to kind of see how it works as in my delivery and all the different people I'll, I'll you know, work with and all that. And then I'll kind of come up with kind of um, a process then for next year, whereas I'll refine things better, which I do. It's very bespoke kind of service, I guess, to people like, Everyone wants different things and everyone has different failings. Like, you know, if you're working with a group, you don't just come in with a party line saying, okay, we'll do this, 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 and this and fix it. You have to observe what they're doing first and what isn't going wrong because, or what is going wrong, should I say. They mightn't tell you what's going wrong. They mightn't even know what's going wrong. You have to watch it. 
identify it and that's what you target with people so that's kind of what i've done all my career really you know like it's especially in special forces you know it's um it's just the will to win the will to get on with it get it done and to be as effective as you can all the time not just you know when the lights are on all the time you know it's 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 simple but it isn't easy because the most important thing is you need for a team who wants to attain that high performance status that we all talk about you have to have a buy-in and people have to be willing to do a warts and all process so where that starts is like absolutely open and honest conversation about what's good and what's bad like your own faults your own fears and problems and you know I, i do a piece on that with people um kind of more extreme version of it where I get them to point each other's problems out and so on and so forth or a softer version where I get them to talk about it themselves. And it's so kind of um, takes the chains off a team because like if you're not with someone all the time and look, special forces and the military is probably, I won't say the ultimate way to build a team, but it's, it's, it's pretty extreme. Like it's, it's for, I haven't seen another organization outside the military that can create that bond like that, but uh, you can give snippets of that bond to people. And, if, if a company or group or team are willing to open their soul and be willing to kind of fix something because they're passionate about doing it, they want to do well, then you can do so much with them. And say if something breaks uh, in any environment, like resilience is a word we've heard an awful lot about in the last couple of years, and it's something close to home for the two of us here. You You would be the man to talk to about building resilience and understanding it and sense making it yeah what 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 do, what do you do with individuals when you're trying to help them get back to where they were or even get back stronger yeah well like resilience is the buzzword you know since we had our lockdowns and everybody has their own kind of you know i won't say version of it that's not fair to say that but their own view on it let's say um for for my side of it and like all resilience is right is ability just to keep going and when things go wrong you know all all these things so how it's learned there's there's three important ways i guess you learn resilience so first of all is by experience so you teach you tell someone look you've done this before this is what happened this went wrong but learn from it you know and that's an important part um you learn then from um a learned version of resilience for example when you're a child and you lick a seven volt battery and it burns your tongue, you either like it and you do it again, or you don't do it again. So you're becoming resilient there straight away. And I suppose the last and kind of most important part of it is your personality is a huge part of it. Like some people are naturally more resilient um, and they're easier. I won't say easier, but it's, it's, they kind of can get more out of it. I can go further with, with it because like everything else it's a scale like we all have different levels of resilience for different things um so they're kind of the three ways i work on it and and deal with people if that answers your question now so we hope you got a lot from that there's so much to psychological safety teaming belonging the whole thing and we got amy edmondson who we want you to go look up as well as these excellent four guests that we have just shared with you and the takeaways, the kind of actions that you really should think about today and reflect on, you know, vulnerability, creating a space to see people for who they truly are, allow a group of individuals to break through those glass ceilings of working as a team. So vulnerability, a massive takeaway for us today. 
Yeah, we want to look at stable teams. It's not always going to be focused on them. There's going to be change. So why don't we want to why don't we focus on creating a culture that promotes excellent teamwork and teaming and looking to understand exactly where we're going as a group. I think to chunk on that a little bit further, the third big takeaway today is look at all the good in the build up. To piggyback on what Lisa said, it's it's sometimes really important to look at what you've done, write it down. It can help reveal the progress to date that builds momentum but it definitely fuels your drive to push on. Yep, so there's so much to take away from that. And if you can find any lessons that are individual to your situation, do share them with us all the time. But we've got some, again, some interesting things coming up. We got chapter three soon, and we got some live shows on the way. So thanks very much for tuning in again. Chapter two of Season of Reflections. See you soon. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, a story of high performance. This was brought to you by Howora, a whole person wellbeing company founded and run from Dublin, Ireland. Find out more at howoralife.com, spelt H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Please rate, review and share the podcast. Some people want it to happen. Some wish it would happen. Others make it happen. The GOAT, Michael Jordan.